A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by a summer camp, Camp Turnesol. Camp Turnesol is a French camp. They have 17 day camp campuses in the greater Toronto area. They have an overnight camp in Bracebridge, Ontario. They have a 13 day trip to Quebec. This is suited to kids with all levels of French. This is uh, French instruction through experiential learning, not via classroom-type lessons. It's summer camp. And for listeners of this podcast, you will get 20 bucks off of your first order at camptea.ca. That's easy to remember. Camptea.ca, promo code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Paytm. Paytm is the app that lets you pay all of your bills all of them in one place, which is not only convenient, but is also a way to get cash back on bill payments. Why not get cash back on bill payments just like you do credit card payments? You can get 10% cash back on ESSO. Have you seen how expensive gas is right now? 10% back is money in your pocket. You can get 100% back on something like Apple AirPods. Check it out. This is on top of whatever other rewards you're getting through your credit card. Go to paytm.ca. You ever notice that every conversation about the impact of technology on the news is totally depressing? Bots that spread fake news, outrage mining algorithms, privacy violating behavior tracking programmatic advertising. It's always a bummer. Every other industry gets to talk about neat tech, fun tech, cool tech. But in news, it's always dystopian nightmare fuel. I don't know if it's just because journalists are uh, cynical by nature and not really genetically capable of dreaming wonderful dreams, or maybe we all just hate tech for killing our old business model or what, but I have never had a fun future forward chat with a colleague where we marvel with amazement and glee at the thrilling possibilities ahead. It is always just sad. Well, not today. 
Today, we are going to talk about the exciting, the innovative, the fun advances that digital technology might bring to journalism. We're going to try to. My guest is Joshua Benton, director of the Neiman Lab for Journalism at Harvard University. Guys, he runs a journalism lab at Harvard. Sounds cool already, right? Okay, this is going to be fun. Not depressing. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Ryan Day, Jessica Cross, Mariam Hamao, Benoit Blanchard, John Radice, Maeve Gibson, Eliza Von Bayer, and Terry Newell. Hi, it's Terry from New Westminster. I'm an insurance broker. I listen to Canada Land because I like your take on the media, Jesse. I support Canada Land because it's important and because Thunder Bay. We really need that story. Plus, you're not always right and you admit it. That's also nice. And this episode is brought to you by Hover. Hover is where you go to get a domain for a website, and it's where to get email that's associated with that domain. I'm jesse at canadalandshow.com. That is through Hover. I've been using Hover for this stuff before they were an advertiser, and the reason for that is that the domain registration business is shady, and Hover is not. Uh, They have a very clean interface. It's not filled with spam and buttons that actually lead to them getting more money from you. They have very good customer support, and they're all about just helping you see what domains are available out of like 400 possible domain suffixes. So they've always been a real pleasure to use as a customer of theirs. And uh, if you go to hover.com slash CanadaLand, you're going to get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that is hover.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Go find yourself a domain. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
Finally, this episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I always like when there's a sponsor offering something that uh, that I can feel really good about connecting people with, and The Great Courses Plus connects you with knowledge and learning. These are beautifully produced courses taught by the world's leading educators. One course that you might like, The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking. And here's the exciting part. Your first month is free, so there's really no reason not to go have a look around. A free month of unlimited access to an entire library of learning. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CanadaLand. And you got to spell out the word plus. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. God help me, I want to start with blockchain. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell me all about your new blockchain startup. No, you don't have a blockchain startup, but... Uh, Neiman has covered this thing called Civil, right? which is blockchain for news. And I have read three articles about this three times each, and I still have no clue how this works really. Uh, can you endeavor to take me through this? I think the core answer is there's a lot of money floating around waiting to be attached to anything with blockchain in the in the pitch. And um, <laughs> some talented journalists are taking advantage of that, which is a very reasonable thing to do. So, uh, you know, I, I assume that this you- is a relief that we're going to be cynical and, snar- and snotty. <laughs> I was afraid for a minute that we would get techno utopian here. I, I, we're off to the right foot. I've been doing this job for 10 years. The techno utopia is, is, is a very distant thing in the past. But I assume your listeners probably have some idea what blockchain is. But the idea is it's this technology. It's the foundation of Bitcoin that allows information to be encoded in this public, unalterable way to keep this ledger of transactions or any other form of content that you want. The idea is it might reintroduce some form of scarcity to news because you might be able to identify individual copies as opposed to, you know, the way that the web, you know, there's something on a server and it goes everywhere every time you you go to see it. The idea behind civil, I don't know if I want to speak on their behalf, but I I think the, the general idea is we want to create this framework for other news organizations to begin So they are creating what they call a fleet of newsrooms, uh, each of which has their own particular area of focus. And the key advantages that they say they're offering are, one, because of blockchain technology, their archives will be unalterable. So we remember, you know, when Gawker Media got into its trouble, there was some question, there is still some question about what will happen to the Gawker archives, right? Sure. When the American news site DNA Info uh, and Gothamist as well, the Gothamist set of sites shut down, uh, for about a day, everyone's clips went away and journalists were in a panic. Oh, my gosh, how will I ever be able to prove I, I aggregated that Instagram photo? Uh, so, so just to stop you there for a second, <laughs> basically the, the, the problem that it solves is when it inevitably goes under, the archives are safe. I mean, that is a real problem. Um, well, I don't know that that's a business model, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think it also means that Peter Thiel can't take you down. I think that's the, the other underlying idea there. But I think that's a fine idea. But like you, I don't think that's necessarily a revolution. The second piece is that like every sentient being uh, on planet Earth. Uh, It has its own cryptocurrency that it will be bought and sold the same way that Bitcoin is bought and sold. Oh, oh good. I was was worried that it didn't have its own proprietary cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. And the idea is that, uh, you know, 
cryptocurrency just goes up. I mean, that's all it does, right? So, um, okay, but this actually, I'm sorry, I was my fault. I, I took us into the bad place. This is the interesting part because there is like a baked in transactional economy. And that's the part that I can't understand is that not only is this a platform for, you know, distributing the news so that the stories don't live in, on some single server that can be taken down with a court order, it lives forever. It's somehow impervious to censorship, but it also somehow speaks to the problem of paying for news via cryptocurrency. That's where I don't understand this at all. Yeah, and I think that's because there isn't any magic to it. As I understand it, they want to keep uh, a certain flexibility in the way that uh, the money can be used. So it could be you pay in cryptocurrency for one article. It could be for a monthly subscription. I mean, that's evidently up to the individual newsrooms. But there's no particular reason that you would imagine that this cryptocurrency would rise in value other than the fact that that's what all this money rushing into this segment has done. It is possible that, you know, uh, civil launches and uh, all these crypto tokens go on sale and suddenly they do what Bitcoin did in 2017. And journalists who got in to provide, you know, intensive coverage of homeless issues in the city of New York are suddenly, you know, paper millionaires. That's one possibility. Uh, I don't know if that's the one I would be most confident in. I haven't seen anything with the specific structure of the way the cryptocurrency is used. That means it's sort of anything other than a payment mechanism, the way that dollars are a payment mechanism. I haven't seen anything unique about the fact that it is a cryptocurrency that changes sort of the, the basic issue of, you know, getting people to pay for news is hard. Is that all there is to this? Is that, is that these civil tokens, CVL tokens, are, it's just a speculative Ponzi scheme but purpose towards journalism as opposed to just trying to make tons of money off of a currency that nobody actually uses to buy stuff? Like, that's the only difference is that it's purpose towards journalism? Well, I'll, I'll let you say Ponzi scheme. I won't say Ponzi scheme because I think that has you know specific uh, legal reference. But <laughs> well, the thing I was going to do this weekend if I had time and I ended up not was I want to create a, a poem based on lines from all the really insane blockchain PR pitches I get. Because I've gotten at this point, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them. There's just so much interest and money going into this segment. I'm sure some of it is smart money. A lot of it kind of seems like dumb money to me. There are people who are working with Civil who are very smart, very talented. I mean, the journalists are, are really good. But even when I see interviews with the journalists, they seem to be thinking, you know, maybe this archive thing is nice and, you know, maybe maybe this will be the answer. But they're also realizing they're getting money up front because of investors who are interested in the idea and want to be in at the ground floor of a new cryptocurrency. And they're using that to, you know, create good journalism and more power to them. I would be happy in, you know, five years to come back on Canada land and completely eat my words. I wish them nothing but the best, but I haven't seen any magic sauce yet. All right, because that was going to be my next question is that, you know, civil is the backbone, that's the framework, and then there's a fleet of newsrooms, one of which is Popula, which is this forthcoming, it's not alive yet, news effort that's got some serious names behind it, some former Gawker people, somebody who's affiliated with your own Neiman Lab. And then I think Sasha Frere Jones, like, it seems pretty serious. So I was thinking like, I'm happy to criticize what I don't understand, but it seemed possible to me that all of these very smart journalists saw something in civil that I don't. I think what I'm taking from you is that what they might see is here are some people who are willing to put some dollars towards journalism. This may be an unfair comparison, but it's the one I keep coming back to. It just reminds me a lot of the dot-com boom. There is so much money rushing in because of the apparent success of cryptocurrency that some of it is going towards things that you could imagine a purposeful end use and some of it's going towards pets.com. And I'm happy if this money is going towards creating good journalism as the folks at Popula and the other newsrooms are, are going to produce. And again, I'm a thousand percent happy to be wrong, but I haven't quite been sold yet. 
Me neither. And really, this is just such a, uh, it seems like a silly use of blockchain technology, unlike my blockchain vape startup, which I'm going to tell you uh, mm. the elevator pitch on after we're done recording today. Wow. Do you actually vape the, the currency? The vape liquid actually increases in value tenfold uh, for every hit you take. But let's just save that for after. It's proprietary information. Fair. Artificial intelligence, Josh, robo-reporters, machine learning. Can reporters be replaced by algorithms? I mean, some reporters, some kinds of stories. I've been running Neiman Live for 10 years, and from the beginning, there have been a lot of you know, people talking about how artificial intelligence is going to come in and sweep away the need for, you know, mere humans. And that has been more hype than reality, but there's segments of it that are absolutely reality. The first big success stories, which are by now four or five years old, were algorithms that were able to write things that look like narrative stories and are narrative stories based on highly structured data. So the, the two examples that always get pulled out are a baseball box score. A baseball box score tells you everything that happened in the game, tells you exactly when the highest moments of drama uh, were. It tells you, you know, what happened in the bottom of the ninth. And um, you can take in that data because it's highly structured and create a narrative of, you know, the key moment was when Joe Smith came up in the seventh with two men on and, and hit a homer to left, right? The byline on this Washington Post story is heliograph. This was a story written by heliograph. The London Bears shot out the visiting Whitman Vikings 34-0 on Friday. Landon opened the game with a 90-yard kickoff return for a score by Jelani Machin. Landon added to their lead on John Geppert's five-yard touchdown run. The first quarter came to a close with Landon leading 14-0. I do not read sports journalism, but I, I you know, that that sounds like a sports story to me. It does, and it's something that, for the most part, has been used to cover things that wouldn't otherwise be covered. So, for example, the Associated Press in the U.S. now writes stories out of college baseball games and minor league baseball games. They never had the resources or the market demand to write those stories before, but now that they can just pull in a box score and generate these stories automatically, uh, it's worth doing. The other example that always gets pointed towards is quarterly earnings reports when a company declares they how much revenue they made and how much profit they made every quarter. That is information filed with the Security and Exchange Commission. It is very structured in the way that the law requires the data to be structured. So you can pull in that data and, and write a story out of it. You have to make sure that there's not a typo there because then there's going to be a problem in your story. But instead of having 10 reporters writing 30 stories every time there's a quarterly earnings week. Instead, they have those reporters writing longer stories about the ones that they're most interested in, and then they have a robot who's doing every publicly traded company. So it, it has thus far been mostly about extending coverage that was considered low value or just sort of not worth the effort and enabling it to be done, which is great. The heliograph example you mentioned from the Washington Post, heliograph, the Post used it initially to write stories out of the Olympics because, you know, you can have someone covering Usain Bolt, but there's probably some riflery bronze medalist who you're not going to write about. But again, that data all comes in in a very structured way. You can write that up. They also did it for uh, election night in 2016 because you obviously have human beings writing about Trump and Clinton, but you didn't have some Washington Post reporter covering all 435 House districts. So... Again, you pull that in and you can automate that out. Josh, is it feasible that these 
news bots, reporter bots will evolve to the point where they can replace your average journalist, at which point, why wouldn't they? It's really expensive to hire reporters. You know, when I'm talking to young journalists, I give them scary stories about bots and I say, well, here's your job. Your job is to provide more value than an algorithm can. And at this point, that's not very hard to do. What a bot does really well is scale. It does speed really well. Um, and in areas where those are going to be really important and crucial, then you can certainly see that bots will play a big role. At this point, I mean, people who consume news, for the most part, do so for a, a mixture of reasons. But one of those is that they like stories. They like narrative storytelling. And at least at this point, I haven't seen anything that indicates they can take something that is both truthful and a pleasure to read, really. So it's entirely possible, and I am in no way claiming that the, the publishers of the Western world are dedicated to employing journalists. I think we've seen that they're not. And there's certainly going to be segments where you can imagine this happening. But for the most part, what we've seen is not replacement by bots. We've seen replacement by human beings willing to provide free labor, right? I mean, restaurant critics uh, have, in at least a lot of places, been replaced by Yelp. That's not a bot analyzing mm -hmm. it. It's people who are willing to contribute their small opinion that ends up getting amalgamated into a, a bigger piece of content. Facebook isn't replaced content creators with bots. They've essentially created a platform that encourages people to produce a ton of free content for Facebook then to optimize and target. So I'm not naive that this is a possibility. Uh, I don't see it as being anything particularly close. And particularly since at this point, if you want to make money in media, the, the trend is going away from scale and going towards you know, deeper, more meaningful relationships with your, your readers. There's this broad shift away from advertising because Facebook and Google have just eaten the digital advertising business. The two of them have roughly 85% of all digital ad dollars in the world, excluding China. And what that has done for publishers is they realize they need to get more money from readers. Um, that's why you have paywalls going up everywhere. That's why you have new subscription products being created, new membership models. And in that context, I think that the quality of the product that a human can provide is going to be ahead of what a bot can do for the least foreseeable future. Podcasts are safe, right? There's no robot Ira Glass algorithm. Have you heard of Alexa? Are you aware of, of Alexa? I mean, <laughs> I mean so it, again, it totally depends what you're trying to get out of it. If you want personality and you want an editorial voice, then you're going to keep listening to Candleland. But you can imagine a product that would perfectly satisfy some people as a sort of briefing of the day. I think more people are going to choose something like The Daily from The New York Times because there's humanity and voice and editorial quality behind it. But what are the top stories today? You know, that's something that an algorithm could figure out pretty readily. The Barbaro bot is forthcoming. There actually is, at least in some beta version, a Barbaro bot within the walls of the New York Times, which is exactly that. I mean, think about it. He's created a huge corpus of data and all the words that he's spoken. It's the sort of thing that you could feed into a machine learning algorithm and have dramatic pauses about any subject in the world. We've agreed upon what the units are when you're doing a certain kind of very technical sports or business reporting or even election coverage. And the ability just to put a bot allows you to cover many more things that you would never be able to put a human on. If the last 20 or even 100 years have taught us anything, it's that like that simple proof of concept can and will be built upon. And things that we imagine are much more human and complicated and analytic might not actually be outside of the grasp of algorithms 
as they progress? You know, like, doesn't it seem like now can we take this to the next level? What else is predictable about this? Are there other indicators to know what the relevant information, you know, for less structured data? Are you seeing evidence of this, these same techniques being used for that kind of reporting? We're not at the point where a robot can cover a city hall meeting, a city council meeting, right? You could imagine a time, though, when it could examine a highly structured agenda, and that included a highly structured budget document that might be able to compare it to last year's highly structured budget document to highlight and analyze, you know, huge increases here and there. Maybe if you uh, have a recording of the session and that is piped through an automatic transcription. Uh, you might be able to figure out when people on the city council were talking about the elements that were in the on the agenda and you might be able to identify you know, the roar of the crowd or booze from the peanut gallery and maybe use that to mark something as particularly significant. At this point, the demands are pretty specific to specific kinds of stories, so there hasn't been a ton of work in that direction. You do have a broader movement towards what generally gets called machine learning. And some of that is end user facing. It's the the end reader is is seeing the work, but often it's a tool that is being created for internal journalistic use. So uh, you have a giant set of documents. How can you go through that set of documents and identify interesting clusters of information? You know, a particular word that shows up an unusually high number of times, that it shows up in close proximity to the names of other important people who you know about. That is something that you're, you're not going to turn into a story automatically, but it's the kind of thing that if you're a reporter and you have, you've just been given 200,000 pages of documents, that might be a very nice first pass that lets you figure out where to go from there. There are simple versions of that sort of thing, too. Uh, the LA Times has a, a internal script, I wouldn't would even call it an algorithm, really, that just scrapes off the LA County uh, arrest site. They have structured data on everyone who gets arrested, and it looks for things like, do they list their occupation as actor? or priest or, or or something else that might be be noteworthy or you know is they have a, a bot there that looks for earthquake data and monitors the US Geological Services website which says there is a 3.1 earthquake at such and such a location and the algorithm can decide okay well this is too far from LA to, to matter or we don't really care about it or you know it was too far in the ground so that there's no real risk of you know any destruction you can start to see these things evolving. I think that that's the most interesting part of this. Rather than can they replace us and do what we do, can they do things we can't do? And, you know, bringing this to, you know, machine learning, I think you're talking about big data as far as I understand it, where you're dealing with data sets that are beyond what any human reporter could really reasonably be expected to parse. And it really flips some of the, I think, almost inherent problems with journalism where we're always looking for aberrations. We're always looking for, you know, the one doctor who acted improperly. And I know that the machine learning can help you with that. It can help you find outliers. But the more relevant story is often what happens the most. And you miss that. The kind of story I'm thinking of is where you actually can find large societal institutional problems by looking at massive amounts of, of, of information that we puny humans who are just looking at one sheet of information or, or 100 at a time would miss. My favorite journalistic uh, output from machine learning was a story that BuzzFeed did last fall, where they realized that there was no good database, as you might imagine, there's no good database of spy planes, of surveillance aircraft that are run by, in many cases, local police departments, local sheriff's office, you know, um, the, the DEA. There are a variety of surveillance aircraft all around. They are not listed as such in, in aircraft databases. So how do you figure out which ones are the surveillance aircraft? Well, as it happened, there was a lawsuit unrelated to this story that involved a set of surveillance aircraft and 
uh, listed which ones the ones involved in the lawsuit were. So we knew that these were spy planes, right? BuzzFeed then took those plane IDs, ran them through flight data, and essentially told a machine, okay, find all the flight paths that these planes ever flew. That's what spy planes do. And figure it out and then create an algorithm that lets you look at every other plane in the sky and, and guess which ones are likely to be spy planes. Oh, that's so neat. They found that there were very specific patterns of movement, you know, going in a specific, uh, you know, radius of circle over a particular area. And they were able to see this quite clear in the data that they had access to. And they wrote a great story last fall that outlined dozens and dozens of surveillance aircraft that they found doing some, you know, newsworthy things. You can't imagine a human being ever doing something at that sort of a scale. That's very cool. I wonder about opinion stuff. I could write the algorithm with you right now. So so the algorithm should just interrogate Twitter for what, like, whatever hot take I have and, like, three other names, and then the algorithm will produce an op-ed piece arguing the opposite and stealing a few lines from other columnists and then adding a reference to your friend in the beaches, and you've got a Margaret Wente bot. <laughs> and I know that that's a reference that would be lost on any other American, but you know a freakish amount about the Canadian news scene. Um, no, that's so my I, gig, I, yeah. I, I thought I'd take out some of the some of this material for you. That's all really interesting stuff that we've been talking about. There's this other set of folks who are trying to do what I would consider higher level stuff with AI and machine learning on news that I'm not quite convinced are, are, are going to work. And what's that? So, like for example, there's a, a company called Nowhere but the word nowhere with a K at the beginning, so no as in knowledge. And their idea is that they will take a set of inputs, it's actually not unlike what you just said, and they will be able to give it a particular story, see what everyone has written about it, and then use uh, AI to generate what they consider to be a neutral, unbiased version of the story, as well as a liberal-leading and a conservative-leading version of the story. Uh, but okay. They've gotten some money and they're, they're, that's awful. You know, and, but you know what I, we're ignoring here is the idea of, um, machine fueled hot takes. We're looking ro- at the wrong place by looking at traditional news organizations because of course that's exactly what the whole bot thing is about is creating influence and creating opinion and creating consensus by technology, not by auto generating takes, but by using machines to gauge what is the most divisive picture and sentence you possibly can through repetitive A-B testing, and then just brute force through fake accounts, unleashing that on our fragile human brains until you get the sense that there's a consensus reality. It ain't news, but you know it's not a completely unrelated subject. I think we have learned in the last couple of years that trending algorithms as a whole are some of the most easily gameable algorithms out there. And given that they are something that is specifically designed to draw your attention that other people are talking about, it's a real, a really vulnerable point of input for human attention because you see this hashtag in the sidebar on Twitter.com and you think, oh, what's that? So yeah, you're right. This is the kind of thing that can either be done through the sorts of things that we saw with Facebook where you saw the, the A-B testing and you saw you know, enormous numbers of messages being sent out and then a a huge amount of data coming back, evaluating the performance of each and then targeting those messages over and over again until you sort of, you know, reach deep into the human soul or the sort of thing that you see on Twitter where it's just, you know, creating an imaginary audience. This is what happens when you get to a, a news ecosystem that is primarily mediated by the algorithms of social media platforms. Xinhua, the massive state news organization in China, officially released the quote-unquote media brain, 
which will be included in every stage of news production from finding leads to news gathering, editing, distribution, and finally feedback analysis in a congratulatory letter on the 85th anniversary of its founding in November of 2016, President Xi Jinping called on Xinhua to accelerate its development of this AI into a, quote, new type of first-class global news agency. That's fucking terrifying. Is this like xenophobia, scaremongering? He just says he wants his propagandistic state agency to be world-class, right? There's nothing I should be afraid of there. (laughs) When you're media in China, first of all, you're operating under a very distinctive set of constraints. I'm curious what will happen when the algorithm, you know, the AI suddenly starts talking about Falun Uh Gong or something. I don't know how you punish the algorithm in that that sort of a case. I should acknowledge I don't speak or read Chinese, so I, I can't specifically evaluate the quality of the work being produced by these sorts of algorithms, but they're not that fun to read. They're not that engaging. They've worked pretty well thus far on this sort of bulk work that we've talked about, but I don't think that sort of lack of manpower is what is limiting uh, any Chinese efforts at getting their opinion out. They have plenty of manpower. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a lot of talk. We'll see if it turns into anything. You know, I think that sometimes there's a categorization error where because it's coming from a tech company, we look at something as like tech news or a, or a tech advancement when really it's just marketing. But I do want to bring it up because it looks like Apple News, they're rumored to be buying Condé Nast, the uh, faltering magazine empire, or maybe parts of Condé Nast. And the Apple News thing, it seems like our Silicon Valley overlords are increasingly turning their attention, actually all of them, towards news consumption. And uh, I think we're talking mostly just about a business model here, but is this like Netflix for news? What do you know about Apple News? Well, you know, Apple bought Texture, which uh, has existed in Canada, has had a separate Canadian wing. It was previously Next Issue Media and then changed its name a few years ago. It was essentially a a semi-cartel by the major magazine companies to try and create some sort of digital experience that could be a Netflix for magazines that wouldn't be owned by the technology companies. I will acknowledge this is how I read my Maclean's by being a, a texture subscriber. It's a pretty good product on an iPad. It's a pretty terrible product on an iPhone. Uh, and Apple bought that. And that sort of gave the impression that they were interested in creating some sort of subscription product that could be something that you would pay through through Apple. I think one of the big surprises for a lot of uh, publishers the last couple of years has been the strength of traffic coming from Apple News. I have a broader theory, and I'm writing a book about it right now, so I hope you'll buy it next year. The shift to digital has essentially separated out people like you and me, and I'm guessing the median Canada land listener, who is college educated, interested in news, wants to seek out news and information, find some sort of mental stimulation from it, um, maybe... Terribly sexy and charismatic, well-informed, <laughs> exactly. good aroma. tall, handsome, yeah. etc. Um, people like us are living in this incredibly rich information environment, right? If you take the time to subscribe to the right morning newsletters and to curate your Twitter feeds and you have the kind of job that lets you, you know, mess around on your phone or sit in front of an iMac all day, it's the richest information environment that, you know, humanity has ever known. But there's this whole other set of Americans and Canadians who were never all that interested in news. And they sort of got it because they were watching television and then the news came on at six o'clock and before cable, there was no place you could turn to. People sort of got this news by default. And the shift to digital means that everyone gets to choose what they're doing so much more. And we've kind of lost 
this default background noise of news. And actually, I think Apple News and Google's got something somewhat similar called Google Chrome notifications on Android and, and iOS. They've both been surprise traffic successes. If you open a new tab in Chrome on your phone, you'll see that there are a set of maybe 10 links that are you know, customized for you, think news that Google thinks you'll be interested in, that page already drives more traffic to news sites than all of Twitter. It debuted, you know, a year ago. Um, Apple News. Are you kidding me? It, it's enormous. And Apple, I've been wasting my life every day. I've been investing my time on the wrong platform. <laughs> I know someone who works at a major American newspaper who says that Apple News is now the second most important platform for them behind Facebook. You know, more important than Twitter, more important than, than anything else. And if we're going to have news that is reaching people who aren't specifically seeking it out like you and I do, I think actually the people who make our phones are actually probably as good of a candidate as any. For a number of reasons. One, unlike Facebook, they are not looking at data from what your friends are sharing as the main driver, right? Because we've seen with Facebook that can amplify mm -hmm. partisanship and into uh, lead to a lot of polarization, leading to a lot of you know political content from your uncle. There is no fake news on Apple News because it's a carefully curated set of publishers. Can't just start the Denver Guardian and suddenly be an Apple News. Google's doing the same thing with Chrome. They both they all have an interest to create a good positive experience that leaves people feeling good in a way that news on Facebook, for example, doesn't, or news on Twitter sometimes doesn't. So I don't think that you or I are going to be getting our news from these sources on a regular basis, but there's this whole group of people for whom I think this is sort of exactly the answer. I don't know what Apple's going to be doing beyond the same rumors that you've heard, but it's an area where I have a little bit of hope because a company like Apple cares about user experience in a way that a company like Facebook doesn't. And they've learned the lesson from watching what Facebook has gone through in the last year, and they want to avoid that. And maybe it'll turn into something good and useful. Huh. First of all, nice shade there for the Denver Guardian, a bunch of chumps. Um, but it, the Denver Guardian was one of the fake news sites that uh, that was reporting that the, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. Denver Guardian. I should know that. Damn it. That's a sign of hope for you. It's kind of depressing to me because, well, A, I'm not on the list. <laughs> you know, I would be uh, somewhere between Denver Guardian and the New York Times in Do We Let This Guy's New Site on our uh, generic for. I think you could get well, in there. Maybe I could. There. They let Neiman Lab in. Congrats, man. That's awesome. I don't know the exact rules for what Apple News requires or, you know, Google News has a very specific set of requirements, but then it flouts them all the time and lets crazy stuff sneak in. But I don't know if the Apple News rules are in any way onerous. I don't think they are. I think you just have to, you know, prove you're a publisher. And one thing that they do is allow for localization. So I can get Boston News in there that I might not otherwise be seeking out. Apple News is a pretty well thought out program. They do it pretty well. Like it feels like you're turning the clock backwards and back to news overlords, gatekeepers, uh, editors, uh, second guessing, looking for the mainstream audience. It feels like you're back in the day of uh, what's on the front page and erasing everything that was good about what's taken this bad turn. I mean, hyper-partisanship and uh, the toxic culture is terrible. Having a, a multiplicity of voices and hearing from people we never heard from and stories we never heard from before is great. Is that dream dead if we're just going to default to, you know, Times Square billboard type news headlines? I don't think so, because it's very easy to look on the pre-internet news ecosystem and see everything that's bad about it. And for people who are interested in very specific things, there was a lot terrible about it. 
right? I live in Boston. I'm a fan of the New Orleans Saints. The Boston Globe was never going to satisfy my need for information about the New Orleans Saints, right? Uh, you know, if you're interested in a band that is a little too indie for your local daily to care about, too bad. You're going to have to read about who's over at the casino playing on Friday night. There was plenty of legitimate complaint about the way in which those traditional news outlets were reflective of a certain middle brow, upper middle class business community voice. That's Mm -hmm. all very real. And I think for those of us who actively want to get away from that, there's, you know, the whole universe of customization and build your own media habits that's available. But I, okay, but, but let me but pause I do, you there. But I do let, me, th- let me pause you okay. there, though, because nobody messes with the defaults except for a tiny, tiny, tiny group of people. If, if we learn nothing from this whole Facebook debacle, it's like, oh, we've got tons of security tools that nobody ever uses. Like the default opt out stuff is 99% of the market, right? Well, but for example, you use Twitter. I assume that you're not just following all the people Twitter suggested the day that you signed up for Twitter. You have curated the people you follow because it probably a lot the first day you signed up. And then over time you see, I like this guy. I don't like this guy. This new source seems cool. I'll follow them. And you're building that. But again, you're building that because you have the level of interest required to want to do that. But I do think that for people who aren't going to do that work, I would rather have the news that they see be governed by even a very traditionalist philosophy rather than have it be governed by what people are sharing on Facebook. Because that is, I think, a very dangerous way to have a limited view into the news world. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that for for people who consume a lot of news, the impact of any one particular story is likely to be limited. Mm -hmm. If you're reading a story that tells you something shocking about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, and uh, let's say it's a fake story, you're going to take that in and put it in the context of the 10,000 other stories that you've read in the last six months, right? As well as the fact that you've probably, because you're the kind of person doing this, developed your own ideological opinions about things. And for better or worse, you're set in your ways a little bit. But if you are someone who doesn't engage with news on a regular basis, then the power of an individual story can radically increase. And suddenly you think, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton really is murdering FBI agents in her spare time. Oh, and also so sick that she's near death. The impact of one piece of information, which is something that you know people who want to spread information are usually pretty good at getting that one piece of information in front of you, can be really high. Again, I would not want to go back to the world of only being able to see what's in my daily newspaper and what's on, you know, the CBS Evening News every day. I would never want to go back to that. But there are a lot of people who, instead of diving into this rich information ecosystem, are just playing Candy Crush. They are just, you know, scrolling on Instagram. They are just doing this sort of work. And I love the idea of getting some news in front of them, if only because it could have that prophylactic effect. Because if you're seeing enough news, even if you're not engaging with it, even if it's just push notifications you ignore on your phone, you might have some extra context when that crazy thing shows up on your Facebook feed. You actually can kind of anticipate some future where Google has a news team, has a sort of a national news team with incredible global reach, as does Apple, as does Amazon, uh, probably Facebook and a number of other players. All these companies have hired a decent number of journalists. Apple's hired a number that I know. Google certainly has hired some journalists. They have not been in the content creation business, and I, I think all of them would still largely prefer to stay away from that business, in part because it's not a very good business and in part because it opens you up to all sorts of criticism the way that being in the media does for everybody. But the brands want to stay away from that, you're saying, not the reporters. Google has no particular interest in doing investigative journalism on anybody, right? That's that's yeah. not in their, yeah. their interest. But they are providing some editorial voice and editorial vision. And you, you may remember that before the election in the U.S., there was a story in Gizmodo claiming that the humans who 
governed the trending section on Facebook. These were human editors, you know, paid not particularly well to do some basic sorting, like make sure that fake news isn't showing up. There was a critique that they were secretly censoring conservative news because they weren't putting Glenn Beck stories up there. Whether that was true or not, and I haven't seen any convincing evidence that it was, uh, Facebook reacted by saying, all right, we shouldn't have humans. It should just be driven by an algorithm. And almost immediately you saw things sneaking in that no human would have okayed, you know, false flag theories about shootings. And, you know, this train crash mm-hmm. was actually the Democrats, uh, you know, sabotaging the train. It's You need some sort of human voice there, I think, if you're, you know, having that end product. In the same way that we were talking about AI, you know, the simple stuff like baseball box scores, uh, a bot can handle that. But when you start talking about nuance, the value of a human journalist is still quite real. Josh, thank you. My pleasure. That is your Canada Land Show. Email me about it. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website, where we publish original journalism all the time, is canadalandshow.com. There is a new episode of Oppo with Justin Ling and Jen Gerson. That comes out this Tuesday. This episode of Canada Land is produced by TK Matunda. Editorial assistance by Olamide Olanian. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land is provided by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Check them out online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.